turn with me to Revelation 17 and verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which we have interpreted as Rome. And by the way, uh, to call the beast of Revelation 17 Rome is a common and accepted interpretation. There's not a lot of debate on who the beast is. And we get it from Daniel chapter 2 because Daniel marks out the four beasts who arise and govern Israel up until the time of Christ. One is Babylon, one is Persia who conquered Babylon, and then Greece who conquered Persia, and then Rome that conquered Greece. Then in the time of Rome, Jesus came. So these nations who conquered Israel were called beasts. And one of the reasons for that is Deuteronomy 28, a curse or a judgment of because you violate the covenant, God said, I will raise up the wild beasts and I will bring them in. So when Israel was under a beastly government, an out-of-control government, then she was under judgment. And you remember the first beast was the beast of the field, of reptilic nature in Genesis 3. Now Satan, or the serpent, was more subtle than any beast of the field. Satan is pictured as a dragon which is moving and providing impulse to the beast in the book of Revelation. But anyway, the beast we've interpreted as Rome, scarlet being a royal color. The blasphemous names are simply the emperors who would take divinity to themselves and deify themselves. For example, Augustus Caesar was not actually Augustus. That's what he named himself as a god, small g, August. He was the majestic August one. And so these Caesars were commonly deified and exalted as gods. And so they had blasphemous names. And it says in verse 3 that this beast was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads which we interpreted this morning, if you'll drop down to verse 10. Those are the seven heads. They are seven kings, Revelation 17, 10. Five have fallen and one is. And if you just take the chronological order of the Caesars, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Claudius and Caligula, the sixth one is Nero. And you can see them here. Five have fallen, verse 10. Uh, That would be Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, and Caligula. Five have fallen. One is, that's the sixth one, Nero. The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. That's Galba, who was only a Caesar for like three months. The others reigned anywhere from 20 to 40 years, but Galba, he was only there for a little while. So the seven heads comprise the period in, in which the book of Revelation is written and seen. And then he has ten horns, not only seven heads, which are the seven Caesars up through John's day, but the ten horns, which we pointed out to you, and this is in F.W. Farrer's book on early Christianity, Rome was divided into ten senatorial provinces. And those ten provinces each had standing armies, and they joined with Rome when Titus came into Jerusalem. And it says in verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings or the provinces, and they have not yet received the kingdom, but they will receive authority with the king as kings with the beast for one hour. Those provinces joined together. They came against the harlot city, 
And it says in verse 16, they all joined together, they hated her, and they made her desolate and naked and ate her flesh and burned her with fire. That was the end of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This woman, which we interpreted as ancient Jerusalem, the beast as Rome with its seven-headed Caesars and its ten provinces, and she's called the great city, which has a kingdom better than all other kingdoms. That's in uh, chapter 17 and verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city, the megapolis. And we pointed out to you that that is a common phrase used all the way through chapter 17 and chapter 18. It's used in chapter 17, verse 18. It's used in chapter 18, verse 10. Woe, woe to that great city. It's used in chapter 18, verse 16. Uh, Woe, woe to that great city. It's used in chapter 18 and verse 21. The strong angel took a stone and threw it in the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down. And so we've seen that this great city, we have interpreted that not as a literal Babylon, either as a literal woman, nor as a literal beast, or a literal harlot, but this is a revelation, you see. He's peeling back the fleshly veil so we can see spiritual realities. What is Satan like? Look in the invisible realm and you will see a dragon. What is Jesus like? Look in the invisible realm and you will see a lamb that was slain. What is the church like? Look in the invisible realm and you will see a lampstand with seven lights beaming forth with Jesus in the midst. He's showing us illustrations of spiritual realities. And you can almost count on the fact that if you take something as literal, you're going to miss it in the book of Revelation because Revelation 1.1 clearly says these things are sent and signified. The whole book is in signs and symbols. And so we should look at the symbol and find the truth. My interpretation of this harlot city is based on the fact that this woman is ancient Jerusalem. And I want to give you five reasons that I hold that this is the true interpretation, the best interpretation. At this point in time, it's the minority, but it's very fast growing. And especially in the light of the fact that prognosticators and modern day prophets and preachers who have been talking about the second coming and the rapture and all of those issues have been batting zero for the past 50 years. And people are looking for something that is a little more accurate. And I would just ask you, would you hire a batter if he struck out every time? But when we plug it in to its historical context, I think there's so many things that then began to confirm. But let me just show you. As I mentioned that this harlot city, pictured as a woman in symbol, but is actually a city, a great city, with a kingdom over the kingdoms of the earth. Remember that Jerusalem and the people of Israel had a kingdom, Exodus 19.6, which was a priestly kingdom, better than all other kingdoms. Theirs was a priestly kingdom from God. God was their king. And so she was a great city. She is called a great city in uh, Jeremiah 22.8. And many nations will come and say, why has God done this to this great city? Speaking of Jerusalem. 
And then they will say, because they forsook the covenant. You also find that Revelation, just as a review from this morning, Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, tells you who the great city is. Remember, she's called the great city in chapter 17 and 18 at least five or six times. Well, look at chapter 11, verse 8. You'll find in Revelation 11, 8, their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city. There's your megapolis, your great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Where the Lord was crucified, to me, puts this beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I don't know how you can come away thinking it's somewhere else. It's the only city that that phrase is used of. And it's where the Lord was crucified. It's spiritually a Sodom. It's spiritually an Egypt. It's spiritually a Babylon. See? By the way, what do those three cities have in common? Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. They all had God's people in worldly bondage. Lot was in Sodom. He was called out. Remember the angels went down there? Said, you've got to get out because we can do nothing until we get you out. God brought out Lot from Sodom. And then Egypt, remember how God sent Moses down to get the Israelites out of Egypt? And Babylon, they went into bondage up in exile in Babylon. And God sent Ezra and Nehemiah. And they came back and rebuilt the temple and city in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. All three cities had God's people ensconced in a kind of worldliness. And there was an urgent appeal, get out on all three of them because the judgment is coming. The Jerusalem of 70 A.D. was a kind of Sodom. All right, listen at this verse. I'm just going to read this to you. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. Well, who's he talking to? He tells you in the previous verse, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Well, what's he calling them Sodom for? Because they'd become very wicked. And they had become an Egypt, a Sodom and an Egypt. Egypt was hard-hearted. Do you remember when Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, had the man with the withered hand? He said, stretch forth your hand. And the Pharisees gathered around to see if he was going to heal him or not because it was the Sabbath and you couldn't heal on the Sabbath because that would be considered work and you can't work on the Sabbath, otherwise you're guilty of death, i.e., if you heal this man, we'll kill you. And Jesus said, should I do good on the Sabbath, looking at them? They were all watching him. And Jesus, being grieved at the hardness of their heart, healed him. The hardness of their heart. Who else has a hard heart? Pharaoh. Hardness of heart. They were in Egypt. They were a kind of Egypt. They were a kind of wicked Sodom. And they were a Babylon. Many of the synagogues which have been dug up in modern archaeological finds have discovered signs of the zodiac in the floors of many, not just a few, many of the synagogues that were dug up. They've dug up about 300 over in modern-day Israel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 5. Now, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in the Old Testament as well as the New. In the Old Testament, it was destroyed during the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And Ezekiel the prophet, this is in Ezekiel chapter 5, God tells Ezekiel, calls him a son of man, and says, Now I want you to take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard and take scales and weigh and divide the hair. 
cut off all your hair and your beard, and then weigh it out. Ezekiel 5, now verse 2, he tells Ezekiel, Now take your hair, and one-third of your hair I want you to burn in the fire. And then he says, Now I want you to take another one-third outside and strike this one-third with the sword. Now here's a guy who cuts his hair, he burns one-third of it in the middle of the city. He takes another third, and he starts heating it with the sword. I mean, you do what God tells you to do, you know. It may not make sense at the time. And the third third is you take out and you just throw it up in the wind and scatter it to the wind. That's in verse 2. And I will unsheath a sword behind it. In verse 3 he says, And take just a few in number and bind them in the edge of your robes. Oh, man. Because here's what God is saying to Ezekiel's day, about 6th century B.C. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one-third of the people and they're going to burn in the siege of the city. That's what he says there. And another third, they're going to perish when the Babylonians break in and, they, and the Babylonians kill them. One-third's going to die by the sword. One-third's going to die in the fire. The other third is going to be scattered to the wind. There is going to be a few that I'm going to keep for myself. <laughs> oh, man. Do you ever see yourself as one of those few that God kept for himself and put in his robe and covered with his covenant. Nothing else would matter if you're one of the few that's got spared. Now turn to Revelation chapter 16. This is the seven bowls that are poured out. And I'm going to throw this out there, and I know this is going to sound strange to some of you because this vocabulary is new to you, and I know that, but there's a place in a town called Megiddo. It's a flat area. You could probably get maybe 30,000 soldiers there. Har is the Hebrew for mount. Megiddo is the name of the plain. Titus, before he attacked Jerusalem, gathered his soldiers at the mount of Megiddo. Har Megiddon. I'm just telling you, that's what happened historically. And John did hear Jesus tell him, these are things that are going to happen shortly. Chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 16, verse 19, and look at this. The great city, which I am taking as to be Jerusalem. In Ezekiel's day, it was Jerusalem. Ezekiel 5, verse 5, because he tells you that, by the way. Ezekiel 5, verse 5. He says, this is Jerusalem. Now here, we're in Revelation. And in Revelation 16, verse 19, the great city, Megapolis, the word used in chapter 17 and 18, again and again, chapter 11, verse 8 to describe the place where the Lord was crucified. The great city was split into three parts. And look at this. And the cities of the nations fell. Notice the contrast. There's the great city and then there's the cities of the nations. Now what does that tell you? If the great city is divided into three parts just like in Ezekiel's day and all the other cities are the nations. One translation says the cities of the Gentiles then what does that tell you? That tells you that the great city is without question got to be the holy city, Jerusalem. And by the way, Ezekiel 16, verse 21, huge hailstones about 100 pounds came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail. One of the things that Josephus, the historian who lived, by the way, during the siege and wrote the narrative of the description of the siege, he said one of the things that the Romans did is they got these catapults. And the stones they threw were 100-pound stones. And they would throw them during the day and everybody could see them. 
So then they waited till night and painted them all black. And Josephus described how those stones at night whistling through the air, you could not see anything and they could take the head off of ten men. Huge hailstones. Why, by the way, are these plagues and hailstones coming? Because there's a new Egypt and there's a new exodus about to happen in which God is going to get his people and take them out and form a new covenant community just like he did in the days of the Exodus. So why do we take the harlot city as Jerusalem, ancient and old Jerusalem? Because number one, it's called the great city, which both in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 22.8, Revelation 11.8, Ezekiel 5, and here in chapter 16, it is again and again referenced and connected and plugged in to the historical city of Jerusalem. A second reason I take the uh, harlot which is called the great city, to be old Jerusalem. It is because the beast turns on her and burns her in one hour. This happened, Rome did it to Jerusalem. What other interpretation do we find possible there? Now, some have said that the beast turning on the harlot city, that the harlot city is Roman Catholic Church. But you have to remember, you have to plug this in to the history of John's day. This is something John was already experiencing in Revelation 1-9. He's already in tribulation. He's already experiencing some of these things. What would that mean to John and the seven churches of chapter 2 and 3 if God said to him, you know, one of these days the church is going to get so corrupt, it's going to be the Roman Catholic Church, and then I'm going to judge it. And John in Patmos and in tribulation with the companions of others in tribulation is saying, okay, God, Thank you for helping me right now. How does that help him? There is a historical connection in which God is ministering through Jesus Christ in a revelation to John and those churches. We must not unplug it. And besides that, the burning of this city in one hour, and you can see the fact that chapter 18, verse 10, they stood at a distance and said, Woe to the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Chapter 18, verse 14, the fruit you long for is gone and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away and men will no longer find them from you. And in chapter 18, verse 21, a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Well, we can find the Roman Catholic Church. We can find the city of Rome. We can find those things. What can we not find? The ancient city of Jerusalem, which exists no longer. Her covenant does not exist. Her temple does not exist. That is the Muslim mosque built in the 7th century A.D. and has been there for 1,300 years. And underneath all this silt, 20 feet underground, is old and ancient Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem no longer exists. Her temple doesn't exist. And guess what? Her covenant does not exist. So he says to her, come out of her. And here's what Jesus speaking to the people. This is Luke 19, verse 43. The days will come against you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone left standing on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They will level you to the ground. That happened in 70 AD. 
I don't see how it can apply to Rome. It's never been leveled to the ground. Or how it can happen to the Roman Catholic Church, which is not a city and has not been leveled to the ground. It did happen when the beast, Rome, turned on Jerusalem and leveled her to the ground, this great city. So why do we call it ancient city of Jerusalem? Because it's called a great city. And secondly, because it fulfills the description that is given here, the beast turned on her. And I have just a passage I think is relevant to us. Let me just read this to you. Micah is explaining why Jerusalem will be destroyed. The prophet Micah, chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, O heads of the house of Jacob and rulers who abhor justice and twist what is straight. You think there are rulers who can speak with sophistication and political jargon but end up doing wrong? Leaders who... Heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist what is straight and build Zion with bloodshed. A million abortions last year. Why? A lot of it's for money. You take money out of the abortion industry and it dry up tomorrow. They build their city with bloodshed and her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. They do it for money. Now listen. This is Micah 3.12. Therefore, on account of you, these bad leaders, both political and spiritual, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the temple a forest. This is called the Wailing Wall or section of it. The Wailing Wall, sometimes you hear about the Wailing Wall, it's not considered part of the temple area. The Wailing Wall is not the temple it is a section of the city, an older city. And some even say if you go back to 70 AD, it's not even the area where the temple sat. But it's in the direction of it, and so they go and they weep and they wail at the wailing wall. I take the fact that the turn of events in Revelation 17 seemed to fit the destruction by the Romans of Jerusalem as being true to the interpretation. Number one, it's called the great city. 11.8 clearly says it's the place where the Lord was crucified. Chapter 16 clearly says it's distinguished from the cities of the nations. The second reason, if the beast turns on her and burns her, no other interpretation seems to fit John's day and the history and like a hand in a glove. And then a third reason, Jerusalem, I believe, is this harlot is because Jerusalem alone is called a harlot in the Bible. See, Rome never had a covenant with God. Who had a covenant with God that she would be considered throwing off the law and flaunting her beauty? Isaiah 1.21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. What faithful city? Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And how she's become a harlot. By the way, you realize that God is a jealous God? Did you know in Exodus it says his name is jealous? God's a jealous God. Why? He wants his bride to be exclusively his. Now I want to tell you, God was very angry when his bride began to worship other gods and in Jeremiah chapter 7 even took one of the gods of the nations and put it This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30. The sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight. They set their detestable things in the house called by my name. They took their idols and put it in the house called by his name, the temple. They put their idols in his house. 
Men, how would you feel if your wife brought a man home to your bed? Think about that. Would you sit on the couch and watch TV? I want you to know something. I'd be very mad. And I hope you would too. I hope you'd be moved to indignation. There is such a thing as a holy jealousy. God is jealous God. And they drug those crazy idols with their immorality right into his temple where they worshiped God and did the sacrifices and threw all that out and started to worship of false gods. I've got a couple of verses for you. This might be rated PG-13. I'm just going to read this to you. Ezekiel 16 and verse 25. God speaks through Ezekiel to his people, Jerusalem, and he says, You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby in order to multiply your harlotry. He said, Every guy that come along, you'd have sex with him. What's God saying there? Every time some nation came up with some new idol, they'd run over and get it and bring it into Jerusalem. They were harlots because they were unfaithful. I didn't say that. Ezekiel said that. Jeremiah chapter 3 said that. And Hosea said that. God said, I want you to go marry this woman named Gomer. This is Hosea chapter 1. So he went and married Gomer, who was a prostitute. Have you ever read this book? This is strange stuff. And then name your son Meher Halhashbaz, which means not my child. Hmm. Talk about a insecurity growing up. That child's going to have some problems. In the first grade, what's your name, son? Uh, not my father's child. Hmm. God was illustrating again and again and again in the Old Testament that Israel had become unfaithful. In Jeremiah chapter 31, he said, I'm going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant. Not like this old covenant which I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt, took you up to Mount Sinai, and became a husband to you. I became a husband to you. I was your husband. You were my wife. You were my precious one, my exclusive one. I loved you. You saw me and loved me and knew me. You brought those idols into my house. And he sent prophets. Get rid of these idols. God's going to judge you. You're a harlot to God. And finally, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the old covenant era, when John looks up and the veil is removed and he sees Jerusalem as it really is, a great city, yes, but she's a harlot riding the beast. And the way that the Bible pictures cities, especially the city of Jerusalem through the scripture, is a, is a woman. Pictures Israel as a woman. Pictures the church as a woman, a bride. And I just was thinking about the power of a woman over a man. You got the power. Really. You can lift up a man's heart to the bliss of that celestial city or you can thrust him down to the agonies of the damned in hell. You have it in your hands to make us blissfully happy or feel the torments of the condemned. It seems to be at your disposal which direction you will go. You can play us like a piano. Someone wrote these words. Oh, the shrewdness of their shrewdness when they're shrewd. (laughs) And oh, the rudeness of their rudeness when they're rude. But the shrewdness of their shrewdness and the 
rudeness of their rudeness is nothing like the goodness of their goodness when they're good. (laughs) And oh, the gladness of their gladness when they're glad. And oh, the sadness of their sadness when they're sad. But the gladness of their gladness and the sadness of their sadness is nothing like the badness of their badness when they're bad. (laughs) Just the power of a woman. She's the great city. She's burned by the beast which has its ten provinces and its seven Caesars. She's called a harlot. Why would Rome be called immoral, covenant-breaking? Jerusalem only had the covenant to break so that she became an adulterous, harlotrous woman city toward the Lord. But a fourth reason that I take this woman is the way that she rides the beast. Let me just flip over here quickly and read this once again. According to Revelation 17, he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Paraphrase, a woman riding upon a scarlet beast, guiding, directing like a man would ride a horse, dependent upon the beast, but not the beast. See, Rome is the beast. The city is different from the beast. It's independent of the beast. It's a different entity. And she is drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, verse 6. But now she's riding this beast. And what does that mean? She's not the beast. She's on the beast, dependent on, but not an extension of the beast. This means that she depends on Rome for her protection and her provision. She is not Rome, but depends on Rome and manipulates Rome, has the bridles to Rome. Now, I would ask you, does a woman guide the man? Isn't the man the beast? Doesn't he rule? Doesn't he? Yeah, right. She can turn that little bridle whichever way she wills. She can influence him. Manipulation. This is a constant irritant to the Roman government. When you read the New Testament, who is pulling whose chain in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Peter said in Acts 2.23 to the Jews, he said, you Jews nailed him to the cross by the hands of the Romans of godless men. See, you did it, but you got them to do it. But you were behind it. Who was it that said, crucify him, crucify him? Who tried to get him off? Pilate. In fact, somebody counted the times Pilate would go in to Jesus, talk to him, come back out to the Jews, talk to them, go back into Jesus, come back out to the Jews. Seven times, like a puppet on a string, Pilate's jumping in and out. They're pulling the strings. They're riding the Roman government. Oh, Rome's got the power, but they got the reins. In Acts 12, 3, the Roman puppet king Herod, when he saw that it pleased the Jews that he killed James, he had Peter arrested also. It pleased the Jews, so he went after Peter too. See, ah, there's my political support. Nero, in 62 AD, married a Jewess named Poppea. She was his favorite. At the height of her popularity, in fact, when she died, he actually killed her, but that's beside the point, he was drunk. When she died, he buried her and spent a Roman income of one year's worth of frankincense 
on her funeral pier. She was his favorite. And he had a lot of favorites. But she was a Jewess. And when the fire broke out in Rome, Papea did not want, and this is according to Gibbon, a very reliable historical study, a three-volume work called The Fall and Decline of the Roman Empire. And Gibbon says that Papea is the one who influenced Nero to blame the fire on the Christians because she was afraid people would take it out on the Jews. And so he did and launched the first persecution against the Christians, under which Paul and Peter both died. And John was exiled to Patmos. I'm not being anti-Semitic here. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. Now get this. What I am giving you tonight is the solution to today's anti-Semitism. Because you know what I'm telling you? I'm telling you those seven bowls of wrath, those seven plagues were poured out. Seven is completion. It's over. All the judgment of God is poured out on the Jews and and the old covenant was canceled and the covenant curses came and the judgment's over and the judgment on the Jews is over. What you're hearing today is the judgment still coming. There's a big tribulation and they're going to all get it and we're going to all, we ought to help by flying them all over there on some gift trip. Have y'all heard that? You can help a Jew get back to Israel. And then at the same time, they'll preach that there's going to be a big nuclear war and Russia's going to come down from the north and everything's going to blow up over there. But hey, we'll send you a free trip over there on the plane. (laughs) And I'm telling you that the judgment on the Jews is over because it came, the seven bowls were poured out. Well, so then is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. Every nation and every apostate denomination that follows the harlotry of the old covenant people will experience the same judgments. This thing isn't just in the future. I'm reaching out in the future and bringing it back into the present and saying it's in the past as a fulfillment, but it is in the present as an application for every nation and every church and every denomination. I want to rescue the book of Revelation from the people who have footballed it up into the future. And you take the average person, they've just taken the book of Revelation, put it on the shelf. I just I don't know. So the judgments that came exhausted the covenant judgments upon Jerusalem. And plug this in now. After she's gone, what do you have? Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19, verse 9. He said to me, Right blessed are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whoa. See, you got the new marriage covenant. You got the new covenant about to enter in. You got a new bride that's coming up on the scene because the old bride, the harlot woman, God judged her, burned her, buried her, She's over. You see, now, chapter 19 and 20, 21 and 22, it's an unfailing. Scott Hahn, a wonderful and dignified professor in Steubenville, Ohio, has a commentary on Revelation. I wish I could teach like him. I spit and stomp and holler and yell and slice the king's English, you know. This guy is wonderful. But anyway, the point is, he brings out the fact that the Greek word apocalypsis, which we today, 2,000 years later, think of nuclear war into the earth, was actually used commonly of Jewish weddings of the unveiling of a bride. It means to unveil. <laughs> now, who is being unveiled, revealed? This is the revelation from Jesus Christ. Of who? 
Who's unveiled? Who's getting married in Revelation? Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. (laughs) Hey, come on, guys. Lighten up a little. I'm just seeing if you're with me here. But it is the church. She's getting married. And you know what she looks like? It says about this bride in chapter 21, verse 9, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of judgment poured out the plagues that came on the old harlot city said, Now come here, John. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now if I stopped right there, you'd know who it is. Who is it? The church. Look at the next verse. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the great city. King James says great city. Some of the versions say holy city. The best Greek copies say the great holy city, Jerusalem. See? The old city's gone, a new great city, a new bride, a new covenant, and she's coming on down. She's not in the future. That's not where you go to when you die. It's coming down to meet you, and you can be in it now. You say, you mean uh, the city? Look at verse 16. The city's laid out like a square. Its length is great as the width, and he measured the city with the rod. Now, if this is the bride, this is one big gal. 1,500 miles wide. That's what it says there in verse 16. And it's a big square cube looking person. Folks, it's a revelation. It's sent and it's signified, symbolized. The Holy of Holies in the Old Testament had an absolute gold bottom. And it was a perfect cube. This is the Holy of Holies. The church is the Holy of Holies. The new Jerusalem is so wide, it can include all whosoever will may come, and it is as close to God as the Holy of Holies. You are in like the high priest in the Old Testament. You don't have to go to no Pentecostal church to beat us. And I do not get excited by a church with 12 big gates and all that and a gold street. I get excited when I recognize that God looks at the church and he sees solid gold. That's his gold. His people are his treasures. Thank you, Jesus, for making me your bride and your everything in this church. Do you know how to treat this church? You better treat it well because this church is Jesus' bride. It's his everything. It's his treasure. Don't treat it lightly. Remember that this is God's everything. It's coming down. It's not going to come down. It's not where you go there. This is like the great garden of Eden. This is the garden city, the bride in which you you marry God through Jesus Christ. It's the new covenant people. In the metonymic or symbolic descriptive word of Jerusalem. It's a holy Jerusalem. And then one final thing. I believe that this is the old city of Jerusalem because, number one, it's called the great city, plugged into chapter 11, verse 8, Jeremiah 22, 8, where Jerusalem's called the great city. Number two, because the beast turns on her and burns her. The beast has the ten horns, the ten provinces, and seven Caesars, and it fits right there, true to form. Number three, because only Jerusalem is called the harlot, and God continually and increasingly calls her an unfaithful bride and cancels his covenant with her. Jeremiah 3 even going so far as to saying that God divorces her. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 3. And in Revelation 17, this woman is not only divorced now, she is put to death for her idolatry. 
A fourth reason is because she rides the beast, and you see that with Israel, how it manipulated Rome until Rome couldn't take it anymore, and Rome turned on Jerusalem and destroyed it. And number five, you find that this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints, Revelation 17 and verse 5. On her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman... See, she's supposed to be the light. If the light's darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. You also find it in chapter 18, verse 24, describing the great city, the harlot city. Chapter 18, verse 24, in her is found the blood of prophets and saints of all who've been slain on the earth. Now, keep your finger on 1824. And go back to Matthew chapter 23 and look at what Jesus says about old ancient Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 33. You serpents, this is what Jesus said, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the damnation of hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of you will scourge in synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you will fall. Look at this. Matthew 23, 35. So upon you will fall all the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth from Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Shed upon the earth. What did he say in 18:24? In her is found the blood of prophets and saints and all who have been slain upon the earth. Again in Jesus in Matthew 23, 35. Upon you will come the guilt of all righteous blood shed upon the earth. Verse 36. Truly I say to you all these things will come on this generation. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to you. How I would have gathered you together and you would not. Your house is left to you desolate. By the way, desolate is one of the words also used in Revelation 17 to describe the woman. The beast burned her and left her desolate. She was a murderer of the prophets and the saints. Who was the first martyr? Stephen. Where was he killed? In Jerusalem. By who? The early Jews. Don't forget, as we close, that this woman, Revelation 17, 5, says she had a gold cup. She looked so nice. She was all dressed up. She had such power and influence over the beast and the governments. And she held forth her cup to invite us to drink. But inside, it says, were the abominations and her immoralities. I want to tell you, I saw this letter this week. I thought of the harlot woman. I thought of the harlot city. I thought of the unfaithfulness of Old Testament Israel. This letter is written by the bishop of the church in Uganda. Many of you know that Gene Robinson was recently this past summer ordained as the first openly practicing homosexual in a mainline denomination. He's the bishop, not a local pastor. He's head up in the hierarchy. And the Archbishop of Uganda sent a letter to the bishop in the United States requesting help for desperate conditions in the Gulu camps of the nation of Uganda. Frank Griswold, because the Ugandan Christians, and especially the Ugandan Episcopalians, see, there's only 2 million Episcopalians in the United States, but there's 5 million more in countries around the world, and Uganda has many of them. I'm not sure what the number is. But Frank Griswold, the presiding bishop in the United States, sent a letter after he got a request for help for the people in the camps. He sent a letter suggesting that the Ugandan Episcopalians, please, and I'm going to quote here, your recent comments suggest that your proposed visit demonstrates normal relations with us may continue if we keep silent about what you have done. 
that is the ordination of an openly practicing gay homosexual bishop. If we will ignore the immorality and this decision, because see, a lot of the churches are breaking off from the Episcopalians. A great division is about to occur. And they're saying, look, we'll help you. The, the message was clear. If we fall silent about what you have done, that is, ordained this practicing homosexual, then we poor, displaced Christians may receive aid. Now, this letter is in a book by Ronnie Floyd. Uh, he's pastor at First Baptist in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and he got a copy of it when they heard he was going to write this book. And here's the reply from the Church of Uganda. If we will ignore your decision, then these poor displaced persons may receive your aid. Here, sir, is our response. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for sale even among the poorest of us who have no money. Eternal life, obedience to Jesus, conformity to his word are more important. Genuine love demands that we do not pretend that everything is normal. It is not normal. You have sinned, and as a result, any delegation you send will not be welcomed or received, nor will we now share fellowship with you or even receive your desperately needed resources. If, however, you repent and turn to the Lord, it will be a great occasion of our joy. In other words, they tried to buy them off. The Episcopal Church in the U.S., Frank Griswold, head bishop, tried to get the Ugandans, don't make waves over what we've done. The Ugandans wrote back, we need your help, but we're not going to sell our soul to get it. Man, but I want to tell you, there is such a thing as a harlot church, harlot denominations who practice their immorality and they ride the government and they depend on the government, not God. It is my prayer that New Haven Baptist Church and its leadership will ever remain true like these Ugandan Christians and not be allured to drink of the golden goblet of a harlot church. That's the application, and that's the message, and I receive it.